When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Her Majesty is hospitalized. Megan speaks out about paid leave for all, and we get a backstage glimpse at the Cambridge's love for one another. This and more on episode 43 of Podcast Royal. Whoa, has it ever been a week so far, my friend? <laughs> we were speaking <just laughs> offline that right before we recorded this episode on Tuesday, my car decided to break down out of nowhere in the middle of rush hour on a major interstate in Birmingham. So listeners, if I sound a little frazzled, that is why. How are you on this lovely Tuesday? Well, I'm doing good. Yeah, we were just talking about you and um, that's so scary. I don't know. I've certainly, thankfully, never had to experience being broken down in the middle of a big highway like that. I have seen other people do that. And I've always wondered, you know, what do you do in that situation? So I'm really yeah. glad you got out of there safely and um, got everything taken care of. Yeah, by the grace of God, thank you to the Homewood Police and uh, AAA and my mom and everybody who came through in the clutch. Um, kind of scary I'm a little uh, when it when it finally hits me because this just happened like this just happened like like maybe an hour ago or a little more than that and um when it hits me I think I'm gonna be really shaken but I'm okay my adrenaline's taking me through the recording of this episode so okay I am into a book. Uh, so my grandmother, I, I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my grandmother is from England. She is British right. and um, she was, she lives in, in the U.S. now, of course. And she was um, at her house, I guess a few weeks ago and was going through some stuff and found some old uh, magazines and some books that she bought when she was in London several years ago, visiting my great grandmother or, you know what? I don't know if she, so my great grandmother did not live in London, but they would go to London. So I'm, I don't know if she bought them in another part of England or if she bought them when she was in London, but anyway. Um, and it was, I mean, she must've, it must've been a trip back. I think it was sometime during the eighties. And so I have these really cool throwback, um, magazines and, and books with pictures of Queen Elizabeth and, um, oh, wow. you know, and, and Buckingham palace. And, um, and then the magazine of course has got, it's got recipes in it and all kinds of cool stuff. It's got a photo shoot of, um, Princess Diana and Prince Charles and, and William is really young and Harry was like a newborn um, in the magazine. And so she didn't want them anymore and she gave them to me. So I'm the proud new owner of some really fun um, British magazines and, and books. And I'm really excited about it. So I've been flipping oh, through wow. them. <laughs> and I did, I told my uh, my mom, when I was looking at them, I was like, oh, Rachel would love to look through these. So I need to bring them next That's time. Yeah, I go to dinner. 
Yes. Well, that was what I was just about to say. I was like, please bring those when you come to, when we go to dinner next, like I want to yeah. look through them and, you know, just gush over them that, you know, those are probably worth some serious money. Seriously. Possibly, you know, it's interesting to, to look at these articles and read them because, you know, a lot of what we read about princess Diana is, you know, written today, um, you know, from a, a modern perspective, but it's interesting to look back and see photos and read articles of them actually in the 1980s when they were still married. um, So yeah, really cool. I'll bring it next time we we go to dinner together. Oh, definitely. Please do. Well, this week I am into new adventures. I started a new full-time job this week and I'm excited for what is to come. And thank God I did, I guess, because I'm about to have a car payment bill. (laughs) (laughs) My gosh, like what it's just been, it's only Tuesday. The week can only go up from here, but um really excited to be back in an office environment again around humans. I my first day was yesterday, Monday, and I prayed that I remembered how to be a human again and how to be social again. I got my nails done, I got my hair cut, uh, all all the things. And uh so I kind of feel like I'm back officially. So um excited for what's to come. Awesome. Well, congratulations. I, I already knew about your news, but of course I'll congratulate you here on the podcast. Um, and um, I know what you mean. I have not gone for a real mani petty in so long. I've started doing them myself. And I mean, you know, it's nice to do them at home, but there's nothing like going and getting pampered. Yeah, I am really bad at doing my own manicure. I can do my right hand pretty well. (laughs) I'm left-handed, but when it comes to painting my left hand, it is like a kindergartner did it. So it was nice to go to the salon, go get my hair cut, and just kind of get some new outfits on and strut a little bit and be around people and it's just been a really long time since I've worked in an office so it's good to be back but we have speaking of scary stuff my car stuff that her majesty gave us a scare this week I know I certainly had a couple of heart palpitations when I saw that she was hospitalized, albeit briefly last Wednesday. So we recorded episode 42 on Tuesday night. We left off with the queen at the Global Investment Summit reception. Then on Wednesday morning, her majesty canceled a planned two-day trip to Northern Ireland to mark its 100th anniversary with a statement reading, quote, the queen has reluctantly accepted medical advice to rest for the next few days. Her majesty is in good spirits and is disappointed that she will no longer be able to visit Northern Ireland, where she has been due to undertake a series of engagements today and tomorrow. So then Wednesday afternoon, the queen was taken to the hospital where she spent the night for what Buckingham Palace is calling preliminary investigations, but that she remains in good spirits. So the palace said, quote, following medical advice to rest for a few days, the queen attended hospital on Wednesday. I, th- I love how the British say they attended hospital, like, like mm-hmm. it's school or something like that. But anyway, on mm-hmm. Wednesday afternoon for some preliminary investigations, returning to Windsor Castle at lunchtime today and remains in good spirits. So she was back at her desk on Thursday undertaking light duties. So I think if anything, this week has shown me 
how incredibly not ready I am for her reign to end. I can't even say the other word. Like I'm, I'm just saying when her reign ends and a late breaking update. So today, Tuesday, her majesty undertook two virtual audiences from Windsor Castle. Her next scheduled in-person public duty was set for November 1st, this upcoming Monday. She was expected to travel to Scotland for the opening of a climate change conference. However, we learned today that she has been advised to not attend this as well. So what was your reaction to this kind of scary up and down roller coaster week with the Queen's Health? Well, I was definitely surprised. And like everyone, I'm sure I was concerned, you know, when I heard the news. But, you know, she just came back from, um, you know, holiday and Balmoral and and she's had um, just a really packed working calendar uh, these past several weeks. I mean, you know, I'm wondering if her staff just maybe overbooked her too quickly after, you know, being on a long break. And, you know, you think back even before she was on holiday, we had lockdowns all throughout these, you know, past year and a half. Um, It's been a really tough personal past several months for her. So, I mean, I'm hoping that she gets some much needed rest and then she can kind of ease back into engagements. Um, and, And I hope she doesn't feel like she has to do so much. You know, I don't really think the public expects her to keep up that pace. I feel like maybe sometimes she feels Um, a responsibility to do that, or maybe feels a little bit of pressure to do that. Um, You know, she said that she, you know, this is a lifelong commitment for her. She doesn't have plans to retire. And, and I think she's committed to that promise. Um, And I don't think, you know, I, I think the public is supportive of her making this lifelong commitment and, and wants her to do that. Um, I mean, she's an incredibly well-liked um, queen, um, but I don't think that they expect her to maintain this, you know, incredibly packed, rigid schedule and yeah. still hold her her role, you know? And, and I hope that she knows that and, and sees that. And I think that people will continue to respect and appreciate her um, in, in this role, even if she does step back a little bit on the engagements. And, and so that's kind of my hope that she can get some rest, kind of ease back into things. And, and maybe she was just overbooked. Um, and, and, yeah. and hopefully she can continue to work, um, you know, in her role without, you know, really pushing herself so hard. Yeah, that was a lot of travel, you know, to Northern Ireland, to Scotland. And while that's not a, a massive distance, it's still travel. And, you know, I'm, I'm so reticent to speculate as to what's going on. Um, in fact, I almost refuse to do that because I don't know and no one knows except the queen, her doctors, and probably some staff. But what I do know is that she has access to the best healthcare in the world and they are taking care of her. And I'm glad she's listening to their advice. I am sure that, uh, like, I know we kind of joked last week about her not being able to have her cocktail at night. And this is before we knew that she was going to be in the hospital the next day, but I think it's all related. She is 95. We are, we have to face this. I know it's an unpopular topic. I hate talking about it. It makes me emotional, honestly, but I, I can't even say that 
the D word. I just say when her reign ends, but yeah, I think she probably doesn't want to disappoint anyone. And I respect her for that. She, no one will ever accuse Queen Elizabeth of not having a staunch worth work ethic, but she's also got to take care of herself because we want to see her mark the platinum jubilee and beyond. So I just hope she's resting and taking care of herself and that she remains in good spirits. I agree. I love her so much and I can't even think about that. So my, my, my. So um, some happy news about the queen. I think we discussed this when we did our book club on the Windsor Diaries, but when princesses Elizabeth and Margaret were young, I think they were teenagers, they participated as actors in Christmas plays. Now from November 25th until January 31st, 2022, you can go see six surviving costumes on display at Windsor Castle from those plays they put on. This is the first time these costumes have been on display. Another time that I wish I was in the UK. How cool. And of course the queen is at Windsor right now. So I would just, again, do anything to see that exhibit. So it's really cool. I love that. Yeah. And those are world war two era costumes. So those costumes have been around for a long time and um, I, I really can't wait to We'll, we'll have to see if we can get someone who's been to the exhibit on and, and chat with us about it. Cause that's just, how cool is that? And how cool is it that they got that experience when they were young? Across the pond, Harry has had a busy week. He spoke with fellow veterans serving as head judge for a photo competition put on by one of his favorite charities, Well Child. And after pinning an op-ed in the Washington Post with Namibian environmental activist, Reinhold Mangundu, he got some A-list shows of support from folks like Leonardo DiCaprio and Forrest Whitaker. And Megan wrote a really powerful letter to the Speaker of House, uh, Speaker of the House, excuse me, Nancy Pelosi and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, arguing for paid leave for all, which I really encourage listeners to read in full. It's it's pretty powerful. So in it, she talks about how fortunate she felt when after the birth of daughter Lily this summer, she and Harry didn't have to decide between spending Lily's first few months with her or going back to work. Here are some key points from the letter, although I really do encourage listeners to read the whole thing. She wrote, no family should be faced with these decisions. No family should have to choose between earning a living and having the freedom to take care of their child or a loved one or themselves, as we would see with the comprehensive paid leave plan. In taking care of your child, you take care of your community and you take care of your country. Because when paid leave is a right, we're creating a foundation that helps address mental health outcomes, healthcare costs, and economic strength at the starting line. I'm writing to you on behalf of millions of American families who are using their voices to say the comprehensive paid leave should not be a place to compromise or negotiate. Paid leave should be a national right rather than a patchwork option limited to those whose employers have policies in place or those who live in one of the few states where a leave program exists. If we're going to create a new era of family first policies, Let's make sure that includes a strong paid leave program for every American that's guaranteed, accessible, and encouraged without stigma or penalty. I know how politically charged things can and have become, but this isn't about right or left. It's about right or wrong. This is about 
putting families above politics and for a refreshing change, it's something we all seem to agree on. At a point when everything feels so divisive, let this be a shared goal that unites us. I only took part of the letter. I thought that was going to be a lot shorter than it was. Sorry, but the, I think the words are powerful and worth reading. So I personally completely support this and I appreciate Megan using her voice to amplify the issue. So would love to know your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm trying to really understand, you know, what motivated her to write this letter at this time. Um, I mean, there are some things about it that were a little concerning to me. I think, um, I think she's right in her assessment that most people feel parental leave is important and something every parent would like to have, um, especially if you are someone you've had, who's had children, you probably, um, you know, really appreciate having that benefit if that's something that uh, that you are able to enjoy in the first several weeks of your child's life. Um, but so there are a few things about this that feel a little bit strange to me or, or something that I don't really like about it. Um, one is this, um, you know, it goes back to me really trying to understand kind of what motivated the letter at this time, because this is really already in the works. Um, so we know six states, I think, I think it's six currently already provide paid parental leave. And I think there are a few more that are uh, sort of falling along, but, you know, there's this big uh, spending bill right now in Congress that um, has been, you know, they've been going back and forth on trying to pass. And from what I've read, there's already an outline in this bill for parental and medical leave. Um so it's really kind of already in the works here. Uh, it's not, you know, I, I'm sure she knows that it's part of that bill. So I, I just, I guess I'm wondering, you know, kind of what really motivated her to do that. But the part that um, I think kind of rubbed me the wrong way with this was the letter was addressed on the official Duke and Duchess of Sussex letterhead. Um, and it was signed Megan, the Duchess of Sussex. And it feels a little funny to me to cross over into that political territory while using your royal titles. Um, you know, we know the royal family for the most part, they try to stay away from politics because that can really hurt um, the, really the impact that they have and in, in the longevity of, of the royal family if they get involved in politics because that can be such a dividing thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I don't know, it just felt odd to me that you would write a letter appealing to the US government, but signing it with, you know, royal titles that you got from another country. Um, and, and I kind of felt like if she, you know, put in the letter that she's writing it as a mom, I think it would have been more meaningful to come from personal stationery and, and to sign it as Megan or Megan and Harry or, you know, whatever. Um, so I don't know, I, I just felt a little bit felt a little bit uh, weird, I guess, from that perspective, but that was kind of my initial feeling. But I mean, I do feel like that issue that she highlighted is something that is supported by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I just don't really understand the, um, the reasoning behind putting it on that letterhead. So you would have rather seen her sign it, Megan Markle Mountbatten Windsor. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sitting here trying to think. So if she if she put it on her personal stationery, what is her last name? And I I guess it's Mountbatten Windsor because that's Lily and Archie's last name. So yeah, I don't know if she uses Mountbatten Windsor or if she could just sign it Megan Sussex. Um, that yeah. that would probably work as well. Um, but I just don't know. I mean, I don't know about the rules as far as um putting it on that official letterhead and kind of dipping your toe into politics and we know that she's wanted to dip her toe into politics I mean I think she's mentioned that in the past um as I was reading that I I will say I felt like you know I was reading her words but it felt like I was I was giving a campaign speech (laughs) like I felt like I was like campaigning for for office reading because it's a very powerful letter letter and it is very politically charged now it's kind of I feel like it's a safer political issue because I don't think that many people disagree with paid leave for all I I at least not to my knowledge and but still it feels it feels obviously I mean it's addressed to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer obviously very politically charged yeah I think so I I would agree with that um and I I don't know I just feel like um given her relationship to the British royal family, I, I don't know that it was the best choice to put it on that letterhead. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from. Um, now I'm just going to start calling her MMM, Megan Markle Mountbatten Windsor, Mountbatten Dash Windsor. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, thinking, she, what would she sign it as? That's a mouthful, by the way. I do think informally they... I think she could say Megan Sussex, um, if I'm not mistaken on that. Um, I know they were, you know, still HRH, they, like, example, Catherine Cambridge, right, or George Cambridge, like the Cambridge mm-hmm. kids at school are George, George Cambridge, Char- Charlotte Cambridge, Louis Cambridge, which is adorable, by the way, but um, I don't know, I mean, obviously, Archie and Lily are not Archie Sussex, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I seem to think that um, like descendants of the queen and, and if you're talking about someone like Lily, who would be an unmarried descendant of the queen, would use the Mountbatten-Windsor last name. Okay. I don't know if it's someone like Megan or, or Kate, um, they may actually just defer to, to Sussex or Cambridge. We'll have to look that up and, and follow up on that and kind of report back on that. If I understand yeah. correctly, I think I think they can just defer to their their duchess um, uh-huh. name. Well, and I've wondered about this too. When the Queen's reign does end and Charles becomes the monarch and he's no longer the Prince of Wales and that will be William, then, mm-hmm. you know, growing up the... William and Harry at school were William Wales and Harry Wales. So what happens then? I mean, we're getting too deep in the weeds here, but yeah. what, what happens then? Like do George and Charlotte now become George Wales, Charlotte Wales? What? So I thought about that too. And I kind of feel like for simplicity, they would just continue using Cambridge. I feel like that could be, it doesn't, it feel like you would have like an identity crisis. No, I know. I'm like, how does it feel to know that you really don't have a last name? Like you're like, you're, you're just Megan or just, I mean, Megan has had a last name, but, or you're just William or just Harry, you know, that's just, um, that's I the world. I feel like the Cambridge kids will, will still informally, you know, 
be referred to at school probably as Cambridge if, if you know, William becomes Prince of Wales while they're still in school. But um, um, anyway, yeah, I mean, back to Megan, I think she could, I think she could just sign it, Megan Sussex. And, you know, I'm, you know, if she wants to be involved with writing letters to politicians and getting involved in politics, I don't think, you know, that's for anybody to tell her that she can't do that. I just think she has to navigate that really carefully, kind of keeping that complicated royal yeah. tie um, involved there. So that's a good point. I'm really interested to talk about this next issue. So Barbados has its first ever president-elect in Dame Sandra Mason. And upon her swearing in on November 30th, she will replace the queen as head of state as Barbados seeks to become a republic. So this is a big deal. The queen does remain with the departure of Barbados, head of state for 15 other sovereign countries. The number has been 16 since 1992, but, um, but now it will be 15. The last country to replace her as head of state was Mauritius, which I'm, I know I'm butchering, sorry, Mauritius. Tia, uh, listeners will probably at me for this, but um, anyway, in 1992, and while Barbados says it will continue to have a relationship with the UK, it won't be the same. So I will tell you that I was concerned after the Oprah interview and the racist allegations, the racism allegations, um, that that would have real geopolitical impact on the monarchy because the queen is the head of the Commonwealth and the majority of Commonwealth countries are in Africa and in the Caribbean and which is, you know, a, a majority black population. And um, then around, well, the Barbados announced that they were going to do this, I believe at the end of 2019 or early 2020, it's been on the docket for a while. And I, um, and while there are still 15 countries that have her as their sovereign, like, and what I mean is like example, I, this is the example I give all the time. When I went to the Bahamas a few years ago, the queen is on their currency. The queen is, has, there's posters of her on, um, on the walls and shops. She's there. She is their sovereign. Um, and that, and that will remain. And Barbados is, is obviously, um, you know, replacing her as head of state. But do you think this is the beginning of other countries pulling away from the monarchy? I know that Australia has really, um, pe people, past prime ministers from Australia have spoken out saying that they are ready to take a step back. And I, I fear that when the Queen's reign does end, may that be many years from now, that a lot of countries will take that time, that natural break to make changes like this? What do you think? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking when you were asking that question. Um, you know, I, I don't really know, but Australia did come to my mind uh, when you were when you were sharing this update. And I do think that this will spark more conversations from other countries about whether or not to pull away. Uh, but I agree with you. I think if it happens, it will most likely happen after her reign. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I, I she's, it's kind of sad because she really dedicated her life to, um, you know, to her work and to all of all of these countries. And it's sad to think of them pulling away like that. Um, you would hope that there would be, um, I don't know, just a, 
some dedication there to kind of stay as, as part of the Commonwealth, but we'll see. It worries me to think that she has dedicated her whole life to being head of state of these countries and that it could all end when she, when her reign ends. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but I'm not going to project, but what we do know is that it is happening with Barbados. So I hope, you know, I mean, it hasn't happened in nearly 30 years, 1992. So, well, you know, I think it's a lot to her, even, even if they decided to do this, you know, following her reign, it speaks a lot to her and the work that she's done and how she was viewed and and really respected by other people. If they choose to, you know, um, continue to remain as part of the Commonwealth, um, throughout, you know, the rest of her reign. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it says, it's not, it's look, it's never the queen that I'm worried about, right? Like it's not, it's not her leadership that I'm worried about. It's, it's what comes, what comes next that I, um, I wonder what will happen in a lot of different situations, but you know what? That is not our problem for today. And your pal, Mary Berry of the Great British Bake Off had a big week this week. She became a dame. Prince Charles gave Mary the honor at Windsor Castle last week, to which she said, quote, I'm extremely proud and honored. I just wish my parents were here. They're looking down and my children are quite excited. My aim is to pass on the skill that I love so much because everybody has to cook each day, whether it's a student or whatever it is, you've got to feed yourself. So why not learn to do it well and enjoy it? So how excited were you to see her receive this honor? This is a big deal. Yeah, I was super excited. And I love that quote from her. You know, I really enjoyed watching her when she was on the Great British Bake Off. Um, And I was wondering, I was like, man, this hasn't already happened for her. Gosh, but um, I did see the photos of her and I thought she looked great. And I was going to say, did you know uh, that she's 86 years old? No, she is. She looks amazing. That's what I, yeah. I, I mean, I knew that she was older, but um. But gosh, by looking at her in the pictures, I would have never guessed 86. I would have guessed 70s, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited for her. That was really a fun uh, little update to get when I saw her photo on Instagram. I love it. Congratulations, Mary Berry. I've never seen a single episode of your show, but I know you're amazing. Um, And Jessica loves you. (laughs) It would, you know, I can truly imagine what an honor it would be to be on Gray British Bake Off and have Mary Berry eat something that you baked and tell you it was good. I mean, that would be oh, yeah. success for sure. That's like the <laughs> ultimate seal of approval, probably. Right. Um, I've, I I want to watch Great British Bake Off, but I just feel like I would just get hungry and I don't need any more reason to get hungry than I already have. So, um, so since we last recorded, new photos from backstage at the Earthshot Prize Awards have come out, taken by our new friend Chris Jackson. Showing the Cambridges more in love than ever. Don't they make you believe in love again? Oh my gosh. Yes. It was beautiful. They were, they were stunning in these photos. And I felt like it was such a great glimpse into, you know, what their life is like really behind the scenes. We talk so much about how the royals aren't really supposed to be touchy-feely in public. Um, but I do love seeing people in love show affection for each other, you know, appropriately. So obviously, and I think this was a really tasteful way to remind the public what a great couple they are and how much in love they are. And, um, I I just, I thought they were great photos. 
20 years together almost and still as in love as ever you know that's a very significant part of their lives like Kate Kate is uh about to be 40 in January that's Mm -hmm. nearly half her life but with with this man and the the flame still burns bright I love to see it I love love those were beautiful photos so Chris bravo those were absolutely stunning they took my breath away honestly so um we mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago but last tuesday night october 19th william hosted the aforementioned private reception at kensington palace for donors that helped fund the diana statue unveiled in july Uh, his wife the duchess of cambridge co-hosted the reception alongside him we weren't sure if kate was going to be there but she was so and finally, for this segment, Miss Sienna Mapelimazzi has officially <laughs> been added to the line of succession on the British royal family's website. She is, as we've mentioned before, 11th in line to the throne. So you love saying her name, don't you? What? You love saying her name. Yes, I cannot say Mapelimazzi enough. <laughs> um, Edo was also pictured out in Greece with Wolfie this week, and he just is... I, I really like the men that the York ladies married. And I like them too. Um, but Mapele Matze, Sienna, um, 11th in line with a name that I would just love to have. So beautiful name, beautiful family. So, okay, we're moving into segment two, Royals Around the World. Two super interesting news bits around the world today. So for Royals around the world today, some very interesting information about Prince Rainier of Monaco coming out in a recently released documentary. On Curiosity Stream's documentary Royals Keeping the Crown, it was revealed that it might have been Marilyn Monroe and not Grace Kelly that ultimately became Princess of Monaco. Prince Rainier, pressured to marry and produce a male heir, was encouraged to look to Hollywood for his bride. It was almost Marilyn Monroe that he went after before ultimately wooing and marrying Grace Kelly instead. What do you think about that? It's an interesting twist to the story. Yeah, because it was supposed Uh, that the Hollywood actress was supposed to uh, bring the Monaco royalty I almost I was trying to say the word monarchy and royalty in one word the Monaco um royalty the family the royal family I cannot speak tonight um more prominence and of course it did when he married Grace Kelly uh Monaco is an we've talked about Monaco on the show before it's an extremely small country and Grace Kelly really put it on the map and to think it could have been Marilyn Monroe is just wow blew my mind for sure Sure. Yeah. I was um, actually thinking when I was, when you were talking about this, you know, I wonder what made them think Hollywood would be the best place to look for the, you know, future mother of his children. Um, And I always just kind of imagined they met and fell in love organically, but um, you know, you kind of think royals are the elite of the elite, but it's interesting um, to to have that perspective of, you know, it was actually a Hollywood actress that kind of put them on the map. So um, really uh, very interesting. But um, I mean, we've talked about that couple before and we we highlighted their wedding on one of our episodes and, and they really seemed to be in love. Yeah, I do think it was a love match, but I definitely think that 
uh, I think they met at the Cannes Film Festival, if I remember correctly. And so, you know, granted, that kind of makes sense because the Cannes Film Festival, yeah, Grace Kelly could be there and Cannes isn't, you know, life a lifetime away from Monaco. But um, I definitely think that there was huge pressure on him. Talk about pressure to get married. I, I don't know what's worse, being a 30-something woman in the South or being a being a monarch and pressured to have an heir to the throne, probably the latter. But um, yeah, it, he was feeling immense pressure, just like Charles was before he married Diana to get married. And, you know, I guess established a little bit of relevancy and beauty and all of the things. And so Hollywood was a natural place. But I really actually think that they really were in love. And um, she, I Grace think, yeah. Kelly died far too young but um I just thought that was so interesting I just trying to picture Marilyn Monroe as as a as a royal is is fascinating <laughs> she's American royalty to me so we have spoken of this couple many times before but Princess Mako of Japan got married today Tuesday she married her college sweetheart a commoner which means she officially gave up her royal title for love so congratulations to the couple they are probably likely going to be moving to New York City because her husband is a lawyer and he is working at a law firm in the city. So anything else for our royal rundown slash royals around the world? Yeah, I actually wanted to mention a sad little update in royals around the world. Um, I feel like it's been a tough few months for Princess Charlene of Monaco. Um, oh, I know what you're about to say. You're about to yeah, say she posted on her Instagram, I think it was yesterday, that um, her dog actually died. She was hit by a car. Um, I and saw that. On the caption, it was a photo of her kissing her little dog. And it says, my little angel died last night. She was run over. I will miss you so much. Rest in peace with a little broken heart emoji. And oh, it just makes me so sad to think about that. And I don't know how in the world that might have happened um but uh just a, a little sad little news update out of monaco oh i i mean after all she's been through this year that's just mm -hmm. losing a pet is devastating so i'm really i my heart really goes out to her i did see that while i was scrolling today and i and that broke my heart so man she's had a heck of a year the good news yeah. is that she should be coming back soon. I keep saying, we say this all the time, but Albert's speaking out. So hopefully it will be imminently. Yeah, they were saying possibly, you know, sometime this month. So we'll, we'll keep our eyes out on that and, and share anything we find out. Absolutely. Well, for our third and final segment of the day, we had a really interesting conversation with our new friend, Lauren Cochran, about one of our favorite topics, royals and fashion. Take a listen to our conversation. We are so pleased to welcome to the show Lauren Cochran, senior fashion writer at The Guardian and author of The Ten, the stories behind the fashion classics, which examines 10 iconic wardrobe staples and how they've shaped fashion. Four of these staples in particular have a distinct royal connection, which is why we are thrilled to have Lauren on the show. We love the book, Lauren. Welcome, welcome. Yes, welcome. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. 
Well, let's go ahead and jump right into these questions. We're so excited to talk to you. Um, for our first question, I've got uh, kind of ask you about some of these staples featured in your book. So for our listeners, the 10 items spotlighted in your book are the white t-shirt, which is actually a personal favorite of mine, <laughs> mini skirt, hoodies, jeans, ballet flats, Breton tops, biker jackets, the black dress, another favorite of mine, stilettos, and trenches. So tell us how you chose these 10 pieces to feature. Um, well, it was a, it was a matter of um, sort of, you know, a, a kind of long, there was a long list and then I sort of narrowed it down to these 10. But the kind of general idea behind the book is about sort of items that you that most most women will have in their wardrobe but don't really think about their sort of um cultural history and their kind of um the way they've kind of represented different things during uh, during history and and different times um and different demographics and and all sorts of things so it was about kind of finding 10 items that kind of did that and told kind of different stories um but that also sort of um all fitted into some kind of idea of um, always recognizable items. That was the sort of, um, I guess, the brief that they had to fit. For me, it would probably be ballet flats. But Lauren, which of the 10 do you personally wear most often? Um, I think probably jeans. I mean, I think most people wear jeans. There, there was, there's a statistic that I use in the book, which I find extraordinary, which is that on a, a give, any given day, 50% of the world are wearing jeans. Um, it would be up there for me too. What would yours be, Jessica? Well, I mean, yeah, definitely jeans. Uh, but again, I, I love the white t-shirt um, and I always keep a little black dress in my closet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you have long been a fashion expert, but can you tell us what you learned while researching the 10 that surprised you? Um, I suppose, I don't know if it necessarily surprised me uh, as much as kind of um, sort of enriched what I kind of, my kind of take on fashion in the first place, which I suppose is all, is, I've always been interested in how fashion works in our, in our real lives and how we, use it subconsciously or consciously to sort of speak to people around us and, and the world. Um, and what I found really interesting was how though, how that had happened sort of for these 10, with these 10 items um, across sort of centuries. Um, and, and I found that really interesting. I guess, I guess the thing that was most surprising was that how far that dates back and how we've always used clothes to kind of tell the world about ourselves um whether we're a very famous person or or just a sort of you know an average I think you guys say an average Joe <laughs> American <laughs> phrase isn't it <laughs> yep 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 so well going very un-American and back to the British royal family which is our love the love of our lives over here let's shift over to royals for a moment so the four fashion staples that have royal connections you write are the ballet flat, the Breton, the LBD, and the trench. I'm sure that they all, well, we'll talk about that later, but royals can wear a lot of different things, but those four in particular, we've tied back to the royals in this book. So Princess Diana 
firmly connected ballet flats and posh girls, wearing them from the 1980s until her death in 1997. You even write that she bought 12 pairs of French sole ballet flats in 1993 alone. Now, I can't personally remember a time before ballet flats were chic. I literally wear ballet flats almost every single day. They are definitely my preferred shoe, but what was the opinion of ballet flats before Diana made them fashionable or chic rather? Um, well, ballet flats have a kind of history. I mean, obviously they're connected with dancers, which are always going to be seen as a sort of the height of feminine elegance in a way. Right. Um, and um, they originally became kind of uh, a chic flat in the, in the 50s really, um, when Diana Vreeland was, um, was editor of, I think it was, uh, Harper's Bazaar first and then Vogue mm -hmm. um, and she put them on the cover of I think it was Vogue um, in the 50s um, and sort of from then on they became a kind of um, a sort of acceptable flat for women who probably previously would have just worn heels so that so that they're sort of um, when Diana started wearing them um, she sort of I, I guess that that history of them was kind of integral to uh to the ballet flat already so you I mean as well as um the kind of Diana Vreeland Vogue connection you had kind of like uh people like Audrey Hepburn and um Leslie Caron wearing them in the that 50s. That was just who I was thinking of as you said 19th yeah. ballet flat I my mind immediately went to Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, well, exactly. So you've got that kind of history, that sort of pedigree already, I guess, in the 80s when she, when she started wearing them. But um, Diana actually started wearing them. I, I mean, you know, I'm, this is a sort of, uh, I'm surmising here, but um, because she was part of, um, you know, she was a young upper class woman in, um, in the sort of uh, the Chelsea kind of area of London, very well healed area of London. Um, in the 80s and she was part of what um, later became known as the Sloan Ranger set mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and that was very much the kind of look that they wore so she kind of like she because she was like projected into the public eye it's seen that they're very associated with her but actually she was just sort of behaving like a lot of her contemporaries so she was behaving and dressing a lot like her contemporaries um, and but then they did become such a kind of signature for her didn't they um, and she and she she kind of moved that look on, I guess, from yeah. something that was, I guess, like you wouldn't call it dowdy exactly, but it was kind of so the Sloan Ranger look was very much kind of like long sort of skirts and big sweaters and Alice bands. And then yeah. by the time Diana got to kind of, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, the her kind of uh, ballet flat kind of outfits were much chicer than that they're much kind of more put together um and I guess kind of harking back a little bit to that sort of like 50s moment what do you think the reason was that she preferred the ballet flat um I think probably I mean again because it was it was kind of what was fashionable with her set of friends um when she was a young woman Hmm. Um, but I guess as time went on and she became sort of this figure in the public eye um, and, you know, she was sort of endlessly photographed, wasn't she? Um, and, you know, we know how how that went, sadly. Right. But, um, I think 
I, th I guess what they would do for someone like her would that they would be a kind of way of looking kind of chic and pulled together while also sort of being able to kind of go about her day like so sometimes obviously she would be pub she would be photographed in the public eye on very glamorous red carpets but then often with the, with paparazzi shots she was often just sort of like you know on the street or going to the gym or whatever she was doing you know so it's I guess it's a kind of way to look kind of um yeah chic without kind of having to wear a pair of stilettos all the time that's pretty much been my mo and philosophy with ballet flats the whole time <laughs> i i feel still fashionable but i'm comfortable yeah yeah exactly that's that's the kind of thing that they have isn't it the sort of usp so kate is the is a big fan of the breton you write a sign that the breton has reached critical mass though is the fact that its most prominent contemporary wear isn't a fisherman and certainly is not French, far from it. The Duchess of Cambridge is a woman so British you can buy a tea towel with her face on it at any London tourist shop. Much has been made of her collection of Bretons worn from around 2014 for everything a royal life involves, from meet and greets in New Zealand to hanging out with Prince George at Polo, end quote. So now again, I'd love to know before Kate started wearing the look, what was the Breton's reputation? Um, it's an interesting one, the Breton and her, isn't it? Because um, I think what's most interesting about the Breton is that it can kind of be a different thing to different people. So I think before she made it so kind of mainstream, I guess you call it, like it's so kind of, you know, you see kind of like, uh people doing the weekly shop in the breton now and i think that that's probably part of the sort of middleton effect she she made it incredibly approachable and and kind of um everywhere um but before that sort of moment that when she started wearing them they were very much kind of seen as this part of this sort of like french girl look um mm -hmm. in paris so with people like um, Emmanuel Alt, who was the editor of um, French Vogue, um, and then like people like Kate Moss and um, Alexa Chung started wearing them as well, uh -huh. um, as very much part of a sort of, it was a kind of moment, I guess, where it was like harking back to the Breton, again, I mean, it's weird, funny, funnily enough, it's again harking back to the kind of Breton in the 50s, mm -hmm. um, and this time with uh, Brigitte Bardot wearing them, yeah. um, and that sort of like sex kitten look, so Bardo wore hers, you know, when she was an incredible, just such a beautiful young woman with um, with a very big beehive and kind of the, the cat's eye makeup. Um, and that was the sort of look that uh, I guess that sort of French girl uh, moment was was harking back to um, with with those kind of women. And I guess, I mean, I think, but I think almost um, the Duchess of Cambridge's adoption of it wasn't really I don't I mean I don't know this I don't think it's anything that I don't think those two are connected really because the way she wears it is so different to the way those those other women wear it this it's not you know with with Kate Moss and um Alexa Chung and um Emmanuel Ault there was it was very sort it was a bit more rock and roll Mm -hmm. um, so it was one with sort of like you know tousled hair and a, and a sort of like biker jacket which isn't very um Duchess of Cambridge <laughs> right no, no, no not really 
No, not really. <laughs> stay on uh, the Breton just for a second longer. So in the book, you write, if once the Breton was the choice of the outsider, mm. Middleton stands for the opposite, respectability in the establishment. Kate is a dyed-in-the-wool nice girl. She is a jolly hockey sticks, Middle England daily approved. A Breton for her is a jaunty, practical, and slightly sporty choice, as it is for probably millions of women. She might wear designer labels for evening engagements, but like any other mother of three in, in Britain, a Breton is her day-to-day -day choice. So why do you think she is drawn to this particular casual look as opposed to, say, any other look she may choose? I think, I, I tell you what's interesting about the Breton recently is how well it's done in, this, in the pandemic. Um, and sort of people that have kind of started wearing it, like Anna Winter wore it on a Zoom, like broadcast um, from yeah. her home. And I think it's a, I think the reason she chose it is probably quite similar to the reason that the Duchess of Cambridge wears it, which is that it's very easy to wear, but because it has the stripe and the sort of vaguely kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of very, it's a classic of sort of smart casual, isn't it? Because it's like you sort of feel a little bit like you've got a kind of, um, you, you sort of thought about what you're wearing. It's not like wearing just like any old T-shirt or something, but right. it's also kind of, it's not like too dressed up. So it's got, it sort of fits that, it hits that sweet spot. I think that's why she likes them. I agree. Um, I feel yeah. like it's um, one of those approachable looks, but still very classic and put together. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about how we can style our own Breton. If, if you are a non-fan of skinny jeans like me, I, Jessica loves skinny jeans. I, I do not. So <laughs> you, you write that Kate arguably made the Breton go mainstream. Her go-to brand for listeners that want to copy Kate's look who doesn't is M-E plus E-M but she's also worn Ralph Lauren and J. Crew. even her sister-in-law Meghan Markle wore a Breton on a royal tour of Morocco in 2019 so Kate likes to pair her Bretons with skinny jeans a blazer and wedges it looks great on her I don't like skinny jeans on myself what other fashion combinations would look good with this top I actually really like the Breton with what do you do you wear do you tend to tuck clothes tuck tops in or not do I tend to what now tuck tuck your t-shirt in oh never never oh okay yeah. that make that changes my answer then <laughs> um, no I like, I, to let, really I like, like to wear them. oversized tops honestly oh okay I, okay. I love tunics and, and long flowy tops generally okay I actually really like the Breton with a kind of pair of wide, a wider jean. Okay. Um, and, and maybe you want to sort of pair it with a, a pair uh, with heels. It looks, I think that looks, that looks very kind of like fashion forward. If you do that, the, the seat, there's a kind of thing in fashion at the moment, which is sort of quite kind of wide baggy silhouettes, but they're mixed with heels. Mm -hmm. um, and it looks quite good, I think. I haven't actually tried it myself, but I like it when I see it on um, yeah. street girl galleries and things. I can picture um, that. I'll have to yeah. get, I've never owned a Breton. So oh, this okay. will have to be a new moment for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other one that is, the other brand that's really nice, um, which I mentioned in the book, and I don't think 
the Duchess of Cambridge has worn one of these actually, but the St. James, which is like yes. the sort of classic, they're very, very nice, those ones. I had one um, and it lasted for 10 years or something. It's, they're really well made. Um, sorry, so, and then the, I also think they look quite nice um, with a longer skirt. Um, in which is which you could even have one like I, I quite like that sort of dressed up dressed down thing so you would wear like a kind of breton but maybe with like a long sequin or satin skirt or something you know okay. like a sort of slip style skirt they look okay. quite nice like that I personally I think they look good when they, when you use when you use them in the kind of in a kind of contrast sort of way mm. so you kind of like play around with um it's slightly unexpected what you've got on your bottom half kind of thing that's when I think they look the most kind of modern because we're so used to seeing them it's kind of about how you kind of switch it up a bit yeah I love all these tips I um actually was just browsing these uh tops before we started chatting so uh, <laughs> I'm gonna um, see Jessica and I... a Breton very soon <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so in 1994, Princess Diana famously put a little black dress of hers center stage when she wore her famous revenge dress to an event the same night Prince Charles revealed on television that he had been having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles. So for those that don't remember, what was the cultural impact of this moment? Um. It was, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty big, wasn't it? I mean, it was, it was a kind of, it, I think it was her actually using that spotlight, which she'd had now for, uh, well, they, they, they got married in 81, I think, didn't they? Yes. So um, they'd been, they'd, she'd been famous for about 14 years by now. Yeah. So she obviously was sort of, she was she was by that point savvy enough to kind of use that spotlight to kind of um make her own point i guess um yeah and uh the that yeah that dress became known as you say as the revenge dress um and uh it was sort of yeah it was picked up from um by all the tabloids here as you can probably imagine uh and and then the, the Sun had uh, an amazing headline, um, which was, um, <laughs> I'm just trying to find it actually. The, the thriller, the thriller, uh, something about thriller and Camilla. And the only reason I remember that is because if you've seen Diana the musical, there's that song, the thriller in Manila, but it's Diana and Camilla. And I just, anyway, I, it's something like that, but yeah, it was, it was, her sending a message without saying a word that Charles, you cheated on this because she looked amazing. She did look amazing. Yeah, exactly. It's the thriller he left to woo Camilla. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thriller spelled with an A, not E-R. We yes, just, exactly, exactly. But I mean, you know, I've heard it called the revenge dress. I've heard it called the F-U dress, whatever it's called. She looked incredible. And the message without saying a single word was, so you cheated on this beautiful woman. You're crazy, Charles. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what it was doing, isn't it? And it's it's really interesting because it's obviously she was probably very ahead of her time in in the kind of use of of that sort of spotlight to do that, to, to sort of almost like take ownership of that spotlight rather than be the sort of um, the constantly looked at. 
she sort of flipped it around and she made her own statement with mm-hmm. it exactly as you say without saying anything oh, whereas he was on tv saying a lot of things you know it's kind of um yeah it's quite classy I suppose as a move isn't it yeah and she <laughs> took her power back and she didn't even have to open her mouth to do so exactly brilliant move so finally, the fourth and final royally connected piece in the book is the trench. So right now I'm thinking of that white line, the label coat Megan wore to announce her engagement to Prince Harry in 2017 in the sunken gardens. You write of the trench, its position in fashion is solid. What makes the trench coat in particular one of the most fashion forward coats, especially as we are beginning to get into cooler temperatures? Mm. Um, I think it's it's really interesting the trench coat because obviously as the name suggests it started it was sort of um, it was basically popularized in the first world war in the trenches um, but sort of the one of the things that was quite surprising to me when I was researching it was that it was actually it wasn't worn by all soldiers it was worn by officers so it always had this sort of well-heeled association Um, which continued after the war Um, and so I think part of it is that is the sort of those those kind of associations Um, which I think that probably the you know the vast majority of the population don't know about I mean I certainly didn't but I think maybe it's sort of infused within those within that item somehow Um, but then I think also the other thing about it is it's incredibly practical and that's how it was designed in the first place. It was designed to kind of um, keep the rain off uh, and to kind of be sort of a protection for um, for soldiers dealing with kind of um, quite sort of harsh conditions in the trenches. And that's when it became a status symbol. Um, and I think it sort of continued to be a status symbol, even though obviously not we're not uh, luckily not in trenches anymore. Um, and I think so you've got kind of uh, the sort of classic design elements of it. So like the little epaulets and the storm flaps on the chest and obviously the um, the belt and everything. Um, so I think it's kind of it's one of those things that is a, was a sort of almost like an instant classic. Um, and it's it stayed that way. It's constantly reinvented, isn't it? I mean, yeah, like if you think exactly of of, um, of Megan wearing it there, she she kind of. Um, she belted it didn't she because it's a trench dress kind of um, Mm -hmm. kind of design she had this gorgeous green dress under the coat and I I didn't even know it was there because all I could see was the coat which was more than enough it was gorgeous coat but yeah yeah, you couldn't even tell what was underneath the coat yeah but I mean I guess it's kind of it's a good choice for something like that because it's kind of um, it's very classic but because it's kind of it's white it kind of has a sort of instant impact yeah um so I guess that that's that's part of why it kind of continually becomes um it stays in fashion because it it can be reinvented quite easily even just by the texture of it or the kind of you know the design exactly like using it as a trench dress or um the sort of uh like fashion industry way to wear it at the moment is to wear it kind of a bit oversized and open Uh um so there's lots of different kind of ways that you can wear it. I think that's probably why it's so kind of popular. Um, I mean, I guess that's true of all of the items in the book, really. They can constantly be reinvented. 
And let me say one thing about the book that I just love is that every, when, as you go down each one of the 10, everyone just has so much history behind it. And like what you just said about the trench coat. I mean, of course that makes total sense that they were wearing it in the trenches. Hello, it's a trench coat, but you never think of that. And I, I appreciate the history lesson behind each one of the 10 items. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, I was going to say this particular uh, piece, it really has taken a journey and I love seeing how it pops up, you know, in, in different ways. We have this classic, you know, tan trench that we think of as a more um, sort of casual look that you might wear out in the rain. But then we see these really dressy coats that sort of take on the same similar style with the belt um, and, and some of the same features, but it feels like a much different coat, even though it's the same style kind of showing up in different ways. So this is another one that I, I really, really love that you highlighted in the book. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? It's got lots, lots, like a rich history. Mm -hmm. So we've covered four of the looks in the book that really um, you highlight in relation to the royals. So I have a question for you. Which of the remaining six looks do you think royals should wear more? Is it the mini skirt or <laughs> biker jacket? Um, what would you like to see them wear more frequently? And is there a royal in particular that um, that comes to mind? Biker jackets for me and the royals. <laughs> Do you know what? I I feel like Megan might have worn a biker jacket at some point. Yeah. I think yeah. so too. Yeah. yeah. Not, a, not like a kind of classic sort of rocker one, but a kind of more sort of fashion one um oh it's a good question um Kate in the white so, t-shirt for the vaccine was iconic this year oh yeah yeah gorgeous um I mean I guess I'm just looking at them I guess the only one you don't I mean it would be quite great to see them in a, to see one of them in a hoodie <laughs> right like that that is a good point yeah yeah you don't really see that do you we might have you seen know, William and Harry in hoodies back in the day I don't I don't recall that's true I that's definitely true. recall seeing a teen Prince Harry in a hoodie but yeah to see one of the women in one that would really you know anything that they touch becomes chic so mm -hmm. <laughs> really um have an impact so for our last question I, I want all three of us to play this fun quick lightning round game so if you had to wear three and only three of the 10 for the rest of your life, which three would it be? Lauren, we're going to start with you. Oh, uh, I guess it would be jeans, hoodie and white t-shirt. Okay. Jessica? I'm going to say little black dress, trench coat and stilettos. Okay, well, Very I'm going to go the other side of that coin and say jeans, ballet flats, and a white t-shirt. Awesome. <laughs> so much fun, Lauren. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yes, the 10 is on bookshelves now. So thank you again for being here. This was so much fun. <laughs> I really enjoyed her. She, we had it, we had a really, really good time chatting with her. We did. Um, and I am totally referencing this list and I want to like go through my closet and make sure I have one of each of these items now. Um, so, you know, there were lots of fun, uh, fun pieces that she pointed out in her book. And I hope listeners enjoy reading that.
Yeah, I really enjoyed that talk. Um, just thinking of the royals in, in like of like some of those some of those items makes me really smile. Um, good, and it's a great book. So totally recommend all listeners grab a copy. So don't forget to follow us on Instagram at podcast Royal email us at hello podcast Royal at gmail.com follow rate review the show. We appreciate you listeners so much. Anything else before we skedaddle for the night? I don't think so. Just wishing everyone a great week. Yes. Have a great week. We will be back next week with episode 44. Bye. Bye.